All right, let's grab our Bibles. We'll take them and turn to the book of 2 Timothy tonight. The book of 2 Timothy. And we are going to uh, continue our series on avoiding confusion. So 2 Timothy, the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy and chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Portion of scripture that you all know. Very well, I'm sure, most of you anyway, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to begin reading in verse number 15, so 2 Timothy chapter 3, and beginning verse number 15, the Word of God says, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Tonight we're going to talk about the reliability of the Bible. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come into your house, Lord. We thank you for uh, instituting the church, Father God, and I thank you for this great assembly. I pray, dear Lord, that your hand would be upon us tonight as we are assembled in your name. I pray, Father God, that you would bless the preaching of your word. And again, we thank you for authoring your word, Lord. We thank you for preserving it. We thank you, Lord God, for uh, allowing us to freely have it. I pray that you would give us even a greater conviction tonight in regard to your word. Father, it's authority and the place that it ought to have in our lives. We just thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you can go ahead and be seated. <clears throat> You'll often hear people, Christians in particular, or probably exclusively Christians, refer, refer to the Bible as the Word of God. This is, of course, the very foundation of what we believe. We believe that the Bible does not contain the Word of God, but the Bible as we have it today is the Word of God. It's the beginning of authority. It's the end of authority. As a matter of fact, for the Christian, it ought to be all authority. We use it to determine our worship of God as well as our relationships with one another. Many of us, if not all of us, use it to determine every walk of our lives. My, when it comes to a decision, if we can find it in the Word of God, we're going to base our decision upon what the Word of God has to say or what the Word of God tells us not to do. We use it to determine our worship. We use it to determine our relationships. And since we use the Bible to determine our worldview, we must at the very least be familiar with the origin and be confident that we can trust it. Can we trust this book? As we know from the beginning, Satan has waged perpetual attacks on God's Word since he first encountered man in the Garden of Eden. We read it Sunday, Genesis chapter 3, verse number 1. The Bible says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said... Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Of course, the key phrase there is the question, Yea, hath God said? Uh, you can see right there the beginning of the questioning. 
is this really God's word? And since encouraging Eve to doubt the honesty and veracity of God's word, Satan has continued to suggest that the Bible isn't really what it claims to be. As we read the word of God, perhaps you can even hear Satan in the back of your mind, or one of his minions anyway, yea, hath God said, perhaps when you come to some of the miracles, you begin to wonder, does this really mean what it says? You know, throughout history, Satan has used many sources to question and even mock the notion that the Bible is God's word. As recently as the 20th century, theological liberalism swept through Europe and then later through the United States, dramatically changing the landscape of mainline denominations. And at the heart of these discussions and changes were several challenges to the accuracy of the Bible. Boy, are we silly to rely on the Bible? Uh, are we... Uh, uh, are we Uh, dumb if we count the Bible to be God's holy word. And then, of course, the term critical text became the catchphrase, which led to seminaries, Bible colleges, theologians and pastors to question the accuracy, accuracy of the scripture. You'll notice that throughout history, there are these phases, and then there's these catchphrases. And, of course, today, the, the, one of the catchphrases is progressivism and being a progressive church. Well, uh, textual criticism was also one of those catchphrases in the day. Some have suggested that entire books of the Bible should be removed. Some dismiss many of the miracles while others, including new translations of the Bible, cast shade on the deity of Jesus Christ. You know, for instance, when in regards to the miracles of God, you know that there are Christian churches that actually teach the book of Jonah as symbolic and not as literal. That it is symbolic in that there wasn't really a real person named Jonah and he wasn't really swallowed by a, by a whale. And, and he didn't really go into Nineveh and do the things. It's, it's all symbolism. It's a great story and it has great lessons. Of course, we know that the Bible says otherwise. But to say things like that, of course, cast doubt on the miracles of God. And then, of course, there's uh, casting shade on the deity of Jesus Christ. Even many modern-day translations uh, don't come right out and say Jesus is not God in the flesh, but they do cast shade on his deity. Of course, these attacks on the Bible have only intensified in recent years. Secularism has led many astray, even Bible-preaching churches. One author wrote, Secularism has desensitized many people sitting in the pews of faithful gospel-preaching churches leading them to unwittingly even uh, uh, hold even heretical doctrines. Although many deny the accuracy of the Bible, they do so without credible reasons. Many will say, well, you know, the Bible, it's just full of fairy tales. The Bible's full of contradictions. A lot of those individuals who say such things have never even read the Bible and do not have credible reasons themselves. 
Bible scholar F.F. Bruce wrote this. He said, The evidence of our New Testament writings is ever so much greater than the evidence for many writings of the classical authors, the authenticity of which no one dreams of questioning. And if the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would generally be regarded as beyond doubt. And that is the truth. Another scholar known as Simon Peter, perhaps you've heard of him, he said that in light of all the evidence available to us, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well if you take heed. Of course, that theologian wrote that in Second Peter chapter 1, verse number 19. People still insist on denying the credibility of the Bible, despite all the evidence and despite all the proof. Yet people, uh, as I say, as they continue to insist on this, Um, There are many reasons for us to rely on the Bible. You know, a Christian lady was sitting next to a skeptic on an airplane. She took her Bible out to read it, perhaps just as you have done on many occasions. And the skeptic asked her, do you really believe that stuff? Well, of course I do, she she replied. Well, what about the guy who was swallowed by a whale? How do you suppose he survived? The woman looked at him and simply responded, I really don't know, but I do plan on asking him when I get to heaven. He muttered under his breath, what if he's not there? She said, well, then you'll have to ask him. You know, the doubters, the doubters are many. But let's consider tonight a few reasons. Matter of fact, three reasons, and and I don't know if we're going to get through them all, but three reasons that we can be confident in the Word of God. So if you have your outline there and you got your fill-in-the-blanks, I think we're coming to the first one, number one. We can count on it because it's reliable. The reliability of the Bible. We know that the Bible itself claims to be a reliable source of truth. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 16 says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The word inspired, which by the way is the next blank you're going to fill out, inspired words. It's reliable because the words are inspired. The Greek word for inspired, it literally means God breathed. And the definition is paralleled in the English phrase inspiration of God. Our English word inspire has multiple definitions, like many of our English words. But in this case, it uses the definition to breathe into. And this is how God gave us the scripture. God breathed the scripture, just as he breathed life into man. Remember, the Bible says that God breathed into the nostrils of man, and man became a living soul. God's breath brings about life, and God breathed life into his words. In turn, these words, they give life. John chapter 6, when Jesus is talking about being the the bread of life, in John chapter 6, verse number 63, he says this, It's the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, and they are life. I think God for the life that is found in his words. The Bible's a living book. 
not only does it produce life, it also produces conviction that often feels like a sword. We know Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 12. The Word of God is quick, which by the way means alive. It's powerful. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. My, if you've ever been in a Bible-preaching church and felt conviction, you felt like the pastor was speaking right to you, it's actually the Word of God and the Holy Spirit that is speaking right to you. And those pricks, we talk about uh, feeling uncomfortable many times when the Word of God is being preached. It's called conviction. We've all known what conviction feels like, and, uh, and uh, we will yet know what it feels like. The Apostle Paul knew what conviction felt like. We know that the Apostle Paul was there when Stephen preached the gospel, and the Bible re- reveals to us that the Apostle Paul, of course, that was before he was the Apostle, but as he was listening to Stephen, and as he went about his religious work, he was convicted. As a matter of fact, when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, Paul gives us this illustration. He tells us in Acts chapter 26, when he's relaying the story, he said, when we were all fallen to the earth, this was when Jesus appeared to him in a great light, and they all fell to the earth. And Paul says, when we were fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me, saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And of course, those pricks were the conviction he was feeling as Stephen had preached the gospel to him. And Stephen had preached the Old Testament, the word of God. The word of God causes conviction. The Bible is also incorruptible seed that produces fruit and new life. And we've seen this happen on numerous occasions. As someone comes to know Christ as personal Savior, their life completely changes. They become alive. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The Bible answers the question, well, how did God breathe his word into existence? You know, we do have that instance up on Mount Zion where uh, God actually wrote part of the Bible on a stone tablet. That would be the Ten Commandments. But the rest of the Bible, God allowed men to write. Uh, God being the author. Now, he could have written it himself, but he used human writers to record it. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, Peter says this, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And this is where the skeptic comes in and says, The Bible is just another book written by men. It is just another example of men's opinions, men's stories, men's philosophies. And that's why I don't listen to it. And that's why I don't live by it. This, however, is both a misleading claim and an illogical claim. See, the Bible was recorded 
by about 40 human writers from a variety of backgrounds and occupations. It was written over a period of approximately 1,500 years. It was penned in no less than three languages on three different continents, and it covers hundreds of controversial subjects. Yet the entire Bible has a single theme and a complete unity within itself. This could only be achieved if it were conceived by a single author. Only God spans every age, every language, every continent, and every culture. He also spans every subject. It's amazing how you can read the book of Job, which is the oldest book in the Old Testament, the oldest book in the Bible, and yet even though none of us have suffered like Job has, yet we can all relate to Job. We can relate to him, uh, to his loss. We can relate to his victory. We can even relate to a lot of the questions that he asks God when he's going through the hardships. Because though we've not gone through the same hardships, many of us have asked God the same exact questions. Yet it, that, that book predates us literally by thousands of years. That's because God spans all the ages. It was in a different culture, but God spans all the cultures. It was in a different language, but God spans every language. The writers themselves expressed their inspiration. For example, David said in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. And, of course, we see that a lot in the Bible. Many of the Psalms were inspired by God and written by the psalmist David. New Testament writers who quoted the Old Testament claimed those words to be the Word of God, revealing that they considered the Old Testament to be inspired Scripture. There are, in fact, according to Henry Morris... There are, in fact, over 320 quotations from the Old Testament recorded in the New Testament, as well as over a thousand clear and definite references to it. Always the context indicates the belief of the speaker or writer. And by the way, many times when the Old Testament is being quoted as the Word of God, it's Jesus himself quoting them and claiming that they are authoritative. As a matter of fact, it was Jesus who, who uh, challenged the Pharisees, search the scriptures, in them you'll find me. And of course, the scriptures at that time, the New Testament hadn't even started to be written yet. The scriptures at that time and those scriptures that Jesus would quote would be the Old Testament Moses and, and, uh, and the Psalms and the prophecies. Always the context, according to Henry Mo Morris, uh, indicates belief of the speaker or writer that he was referring to the authoritative word of God whenever he made such a quotation or a reference. The Bible is reliable because its author is divine. Its author is perfect and thank God for a perfect author who gives us a lot of antidotes to life. You know, we've been given a lot of antidotes by people that happened to be wrong. 
However, God is never wrong. God is always right. And his book is divine because the words are inspired. Also because the Bible is full of inerrant facts. Full of inerrant facts. History books are constantly being rewritten. Science books are constantly be, being re, rewritten. We kept hearing over the last two years, the science is constantly changing. It doesn't change when God is involved, however. God makes statements, and those statements he never has to go back on, and he never has to change. God records history, and he never has to go back on it and say, whoops, made a mistake there. We've got to erase this and we'll change it. God never has to change. The Bible literally says nothing that errs from the truth. Though the purpose of the Bible is not to record all of history or to teach science, where it does state facts regarding history and science or any other subject, it does, it's never had to be rewritten. It is always without error. Notice a few unique aspects of the Bible in relation to facts. First, it's the only book of antiquity that gives an account of special creation of all things out of nothing. Have you ever thought about that? Boy, when the Bible records that God created the heaven and the earth, the Bible records he did it out of nothing. As a matter of fact, the New Testament reveals to us that uh, he spoke them into existence. Let there be light, and there was light. But you know, all other ancient books that try to tackle creation or try to tackle the beginning of our creation, they always started with something. Boy, with uh, Egypt, they started with a flying egg. The egg hatched, and out came the earth. With the Babylonians, it started with the great god Marduk, and and a Marduk, uh, Marduk spit, and man was formed. And then man spit, and woman was formed. Uh, uh, great, great theology. Even with evolution, we started with a huge primal block of matter out in the middle of nowhere that one day exploded, and through the process of mutations and, and, uh, and all these... Uh, uh, chemical reactions, life came about and life evolved and, and here we are today. So even with modern day uh, myths and modern day theories, it always starts with something. Yet the Bible starts with nothing. And it's also interesting that we know this, Matter, energy, and time all had to come about at the exact same time. You can't have one without the other. And yet in the very first book, the very first verse of the very first chapter, you have all those things coming into existence all at the same time. Energy, God's creation, time in the beginning, and then matter. God created the heaven and the earth. It's the only book of antiquity that gives an account of special creation of all things out of nothing. Everything else starts with something, but doesn't explain to us, well, where did that something come from? Even evolution, where did that primal block of matter come from? Also, 
The Bible's the only ancient book that gives continuous historical record from the first man to the present era. We find accurate description of historical events and people throughout the Bible. Even people in the Bible that we don't have any archaeological digs to prove that they existed, but the writings are consistent with the era. I was reading about Joseph the other day, and though many many uh, skeptics deny that Joseph ever existed, they do give the Bible credit for getting the timing right, getting the people right, getting the uh, uh, getting the um, uh, the economics right, and, and and everything else, which tells us this that the author knew what was going on back in ancient Egypt. God certainly knew because he was there. And so the Bible is the only ancient book that gives continuous historical record from the first man to the present era, and it's correct. Also, the Bible is the only religious book containing detailed prophecies of events that, at the time of the writing, had not yet happened, but which since have been fulfilled. It's amazing that in many of these instances, the Bible names names, gives times, tells us about countries and empires. I mean, God God told us that Babylon was going to come and wipe out Jerusalem before it ever happened, before anyone could even imagine that it would happen. God told of Cyrus sending the Jews back to uh, to rebuild Jerusalem or to rebuild the temple long before he was even born. God talked about the Medo-Persian Empire sneaking in to Babylon, uh, a feat that was unthinkable at the time. And yet God predicted exactly how it was going to happen and where it was going to happen and, and, and the manner in which it was going to happen. And, and lo and behold, it happened exactly the way God said We know that many things God said were going to happen that did happen. So from a historic standpoint, it's amazing to see how Scripture recounts history with modern-day historians only recently discovering the things that, well, God had already stated. For years, historians questioned the biblical account of the Hittites as well as the Babylon king Belshazzar, but in both instances, either uh, uh, or both, should I say, have been proven to have existed. Archaeological discoveries have revealed material proof solidifying the writer's claims as well as their narratives. The same can be said regarding science. Now, the Bible made many scientific claims that took centuries for science to catch up to. As a matter of fact, in the day in which these scientific claims were stated, they were made fun of. The common belief in the Middle Ages was that the earth was flat. And of course, we know the history. Anyone who believed that the earth was, fr- was, was round, uh, they, were, they were made fun of, they were ridiculed. Today, it's the flat earthers that we make fun of because we know. Isaiah chapter 40, verse number 22 declared... It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. 
long before Sir Isaac Newton discovered gravity and its ramifications. It was believed that the earth was held up by or rested on something. Yet Job said in Job chapter 26, once again, the oldest book in the Bible. Job 26, verse number 7. Job said, He stretcheth out the north over the empty place, and hangeth the earth upon nothing. And so Job made it very clear that if you go as far north as you can, you're not going to find the earth being suspended by, by a big rope or anything else. And he said if you could go to the very uh, uh, southern tip of, uh, of the planet, as far south as you could possibly go, you're going to find that the earth rests on nothing. Unheard of in the days of Job, but it just so happens to be the truth. We've seen pictures of planets and our own planet, and we know that science has finally caught up to the Word of God. Here's what this ought to tell us. If there's things in the Bible we don't understand, either one day we'll catch up to it, or, we're, or, or when we're in heaven, God will reveal it to us. But you better believe it, because every time the skeptics have been made the fools, well, God has been shown to be the all-knowing God, the omniscient God. The Bible's voice on history, science, or any other subject is always correct because that voice belongs to our all-knowing God who brought it all into being. So he considered his inspired words, the inerrant facts, but also let's look at the infallible truths quickly. We'll look at the infallible truths. The infallible truths. Fulfilled prophecies are perhaps the greatest evidence that the Bible is, in fact, the very Word of God. By the way, you know what the Bible's record is on fulfilled prophecies? 100%. That was God's litmus test for a prophet. That if he did not have 100% accuracy, if he only had 99.9% accuracy, which, by the way, we think is pretty good. But God's litmus test for a prophet was has to be 100% or else he is a false prophet. Fulfilled prophecies are the greatest evidence that the Bible is, in fact, the very word of God. It is what it claims to be. Again, one author wrote, one of the strong objective evidences of biblical inspiration is the phenomenon of fulfilled prophecy. No wonder Peter wrote, and we already referred to this, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. The fact that so many prophecies, most of the prophecies in the Bible have been fulfilled. There's only a few that are left to be fulfilled. Uh, But when we consider God's record, boy, we ought to consider the fact that He's not broken a promise yet. He hasn't come short yet. The Bible gave details on many events, but what about the miraculous nature and the place of Christ's birth hundreds of years before it actually occurred? Daniel provided the specific time period of Christ's birth in his famous 70-week prophecy. In Daniel chapter 9, verse number 25, Daniel writes, Know therefore, as he's writing, uh, uh, writing God's word here, he says, Know therefore and understand 
that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks. And by the way, if you do the math, that's seven weeks of years. It comes right up to the year in which, uh, in which he came. It said, The street shall be built again, the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince shall come and shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with the flood. And to the end of the war, desolations are determined. Every sequence and spacing of years in this prophecy add up to Christ's coming and, and Christ's crucifixion. The Messiah was cut off, the Bible says, but not for himself. In the first century, the weeks mentioned here refer to a set of seven uh, years. And in this case, it refers to sets uh, of uh, 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 weeks of years or seven years. So when you do the math, you come up with when Jesus was born. Isaiah gives us the nature of his birth. Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Of course, we've gone over the Christmas story many times in this church. Micah gives us the place in Micah 5, verse number 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Now, if you could predict these things 50 years before they'd, they happen, you'd be pretty smart. But these predictions were hundreds of years before Jesus Christ came, before he was born of a virgin, before he was born in Bethlehem, and before he died on the cross, dying, being cut off from the living, not for himself. Jesus died for others. He died for us. And these are just a few examples. I've done a series where we just we go on and on and on about the fulfilled miracles or, or the fulfilled prophecies of Jesus Christ. When you begin to weigh the evidence, it becomes very clear that the Bible is a supernatural book inspired by a supernatural God. Listen, in light of the evidence that we have just seen, if we were trying to convict someone and we had all of this evidence, we'd say, wow, beyond a shadow of a doubt, even the worst <laughs> Even, even the worst of juries would have to say, and it's guilty. The Bible is guilty of being what it claims to be, the Word of God. And these are just a few examples. Um, and it truly is evidence, I believe, that demands the verdict, the reliability of the Bible. Well, let's go ahead and move on to the durability. The durability, number two, the durability of the Bible. In our text, Paul reminds Timothy that he had known the scriptures since his childhood. 2 Timothy 3, verse number 15, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. This could only have been true if God had kept them preserved for all generations, just as he promised that he would. Paul is referring to Timothy here, 
who was or, 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 or who was born hundreds of years after the last Old Testament book was written, after the last Old Testament prophecy was given. Yet God promised, I'm going to preserve my word so that a young Timothy can have this word and be raised in this word. And so uh, thousands of years later, our kids could be raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord because God preserved his word. In Psalm 119, verse number 89, the psalmist writes, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. So let's look at the word preserved. God's words preserved. And this is important because this is where you'll hear terms like critical text. As a matter of fact, a good portion of believers today will tell you that, well, you know, if it's not for critical text, we wouldn't be able to weed out all the errors that are, that are in the Bible. However, God promised to preserve his word. And I believe he's done so. You know, when God gave his word, it was implied that he'd preserve it for all generations. Not just a handful of generations, for all generations. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, and in verse number 29, The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us. Now, just to break that down, there are things you and I are not going to know in this life. God knows them because God knows everything. And the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. But there are some definitive things that God wanted us to know, that God wanted to reveal to us. Some of those things he revealed later than at other times, but God wanted to reveal the way of salvation to us. God wanted to reveal the, that his son would die on the cross. God wanted to reveal the sacrifice. There, I mean, there's a lot God did want to reveal. How does he reveal those things? Those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Notice the word forever. That tells us that God has to preserve this word He's going to have to preserve this law if we are going to be able to have those things revealed to us forever. And God revealed those things that we were meant to have. And he preserved them so that we could have them even today. And he made it very clear that his word, it's not going away. We're going to talk about that a little bit later, how there are those who want to do away with the word of God as a matter of fact, in my studying this, I am amazed at how many states quietly are trying to completely do away with the Word of God. Now, that's a scary thought. However, it's nothing new. States, countries, empires, even religions that claim to be Christian religions have tried to do away with the word of God. But God made it very clear. His word's going nowhere. Psalm 12, verse number 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times, thou shalt keep them, O Lord. 
Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. And this theme of preservation of God's word, it's a theme that is prevalent throughout the scriptures. Isaiah 40, verse number 8, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of God shall stand forever. Man comes and goes. Empires come and go. Uh, Things that we thought would be around forever, they come and they go. But God's word will, will stand forever. Isaiah wrote this around 800 B.C., and it would be quoted by Peter over 800 years later. And When you compare the two, it's easy to see that God's preservation is in action, even though the translation is in another language. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24, as Peter quotes this. He says, All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And that's just proof. That's a span of 800 years and different languages where God's word was preserved so that over 800 years later, Peter could, could quote God's word and we can see that the meaning hasn't changed. We can see that there's a little, there's a little difference in that one was written in Hebrew and the other in Greek. And, of course, if we were to take it and, and quote it in modern-day English language, it's going to be a little bit different. But God's going to preserve his words, and, and they are going to be the same. And there are going to be differences in languages. By the way, in the Old Testament, you've got the name Joshua. In the New Testament, you know what Joshua is in the New Testament? It's Jesus. So Joshua, if you were to bring him into the New Testament, is, is actually Jesus. And that's just because the translation of the name. Same name, but uh, different uh, difference in translations. But God can preserve his word. We don't have to know the original languages. God preserves his word, even as it is translated into other languages. Jesus perpetuated this theme of preservation throughout the Bible and thank the Lord for it. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and we'll close with this. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. The word preserved. Thank the Lord for it. Let's have every head bowed. And every eye closed, with every head bowed, and with every eye closed. The reliability of God's Word, the durability of God's Word. Thank the Lord, we can be confident that we have His very Word today, which gives us the obligation, are we living by it? Are we taking it as as his word? Sometimes it becomes very easy for us to be casual with the word of God. But you know, God wasn't casual when he gave it to us. He hasn't been casual in preserving it. We ought not be casual as we live it. Lord, I pray that 
you had just blessed this time of invitation. We thank you for your word. And Lord God, bless this church according to it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand, and we are going to sing a verse of invitation.